0: Good morning everybody. My name is Nelson. It's good to see you and to be with you. Uh, thank you for admiring my tie from afar. I felt your admiration of it, and, uh, but I just thought I'd take it up before the sermon moment on the off chance that some of you might take me a bit less seriously wearing such an article of clothing, but um, I have a preschooler and uh, she made me that, so you're welcome. For that this morning, it's good to be with you and to continue in our series on the Apostles' Creed. I want to draw uh, start today by drawing your attention to what is likely a familiar image for most of us. Have a look. Um, recognize this? For those who might be visiting the city or on vacation, or uh, you live here but rarely go town, go downtown. This is a public art piece by a Vancouver-based artist named Ron Terada. And it's an illuminated marquee sign that stands in front of the central branch of the Vancouver Public Library, which, incidentally, if you're really new to artisan, may not know that that's where we first began together as a community, nearly 10 years ago. Local critic Jeff Dirksen put it this way in his commentary about this piece. He said, "...the artist uses large Las Vegas-like letters to humorously open up the relationship of the message and its site, and also to bring forward an aspect of Vancouver's history that no longer shines as brightly as it did in the 50s and 60s. At one point, Vancouver had 19,000 neon and illuminated signs calling for our attention. From the Savon Meats on Hastings, to the glamorous Palomino Club on Burrard, to the gigantic Bomac sign on West Broadway, Vancouver's streets flashed temptations for us to eat, drink, and buy things. Dirksen goes on to say that the perplexing statement, the words don't fit the picture, calls the relationship between the library's function and its architecture and its historical references into a humorous questioning. This sly work is about language and sight, architecture and knowledge, public and private meaning. And we're not here to open up a conversation about the work itself, as fun and illuminating as that would be. I simply want to reflect briefly on this statement itself, the words don't fit the picture. It's a phrase that gets evoked in so many different ways and places in our day, in our culture, in the political landscape, in allegations of fake news, in social media, in our call-out culture, in our key relationships, in emails from Nigerian princes, and that time, those moments when you're conducting a job interview and it occurs to you that certain items on the interviewee's resume seem conspicuously fabricated. One reading of this work, we could say, is as a reflection of our core desire for integrity. Integrity. For words and pictures to match. To have things line up. To to be true. So often, in so many cases, the words don't fit the picture. But we want them to. Don't we? In the social sphere, in our circles of friendship, family, neighborhood, we want to know we can rely on people. That people can be trusted. In government in education, in healthcare, in the justice system, in banks and businesses, in the media, in every institution across the board, we want to be able to have the confidence that people are not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. All the institutions, including the church. It's sad, but true, that in the church, the words don't always fit the picture. One writer said it like this. Those who make the profession of Christian faith by reciting the creed regularly overcome what might be called the scandal of appearances. They understand that faith is necessarily a matter of perceiving the unseen in what can be seen and that not everyone can see what we see or claim to see and that even we at times have difficulty seeing what we think we see or ought to see, feeling a little bit like a Dr. Seuss quote. What's Luke Timothy Johnson on about here? When we as church confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. When we confess God as creator, we need to overcome the apparent reality that the world is random and meaningless, that the planet's design seems anything but intelligent. When we as a church confess that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, we need to transcend the apparent reality that evil always proves victorious. When we as a church confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, there are a whole bunch of things we need to get past. That humans aren't really worth God's attention. That God couldn't conceivably enter a material world in our physical lives. That it's ludicrous to think God would save a broken humanity through the body of a crucified Messiah. Here's Johnson's summary. Those who regularly and devoutly recite the words of the Creed speaking of Father, Son, and Spirit are adept at asserting truths that seem contradicted by most of the available evidence. There's a dry scholarly quote that you can take uh, with you this week. So when we come to the place in the Apostles' Creed where we find ourselves today saying, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, it would seem we need something like superhuman ability to overcome the scandal of appearances. Why? Well, as followers of Christ, when we confess this part of the creed, we are making the claim that this gathering, this gathering of flawed human beings is the triune God's chosen instrument for the work of changing the world. The creed claims that God is not only alive and active in the lives of individuals and in the sweeping movements of history, but most tangibly and powerfully in the physical, institutional, complex, messy fact of a specific human community. That the church gets included as a necessary statement of belief within the creed is clearly a scandalous proposition. It's scandalous, but it's also significant and I'd suggest even critical. We can't pretend to know or understand all the reasons why God called the church into being, but we can affirm from the witness of both Scripture and history that the denial of the church leads to a diminishing of authentic Christian practice. We put it another way. When the church gets sidelined or treated as optional in our thinking, then something essential gets lost. On the other hand, when the church is upheld is vitally important then what Paul envisioned in his letter to the Romans becomes actualized. So our text that's in your handout this morning, and also the page number on the screen, I'm just going to read a few verses from this. From Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. When that happens, when we actually see this taking place, then things get exciting. The church becomes a continuation of the incarnation. We we become the embodied presence of the resurrected Jesus through the power of the Spirit. And when we see glimpses of this, even here and now, in our gatherings, in our various groups and teams, in our lived experience through the week, in our homes, and among our neighbors, when the words begin to fit the picture, then saying this part of the creed doesn't feel like such a stretch. So I want to invite us, if you would like, to stand and let's say the creed together in its entirety, and then I'm going to offer a prayer, and we'll continue by focusing on this phrase So if you'd like to confess the creed, please read along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, the gift of this creed. Thank you for these statements which challenge. Cause us to think and to reflect on what is true, what it is we're giving ourselves to, and trusting, putting our faith in. So I pray for the illumination of your spirit this morning as we open up various texts of scripture, as we share stories and consider what it means to believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints of which we are a part. So may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, a rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. What are we really talking about here? What's so holy about it? Uh, I thought we were Protestant, not Catholic. What do we mean by saints? There's so many questions we could be asking when it comes to this section of the Creed, and we're going to touch on some of these things as we go. But to keep things simple clear, hopefully focused, I want to engage this part of the creed through three questions. Why is the church Catholic? What does it mean to be the communion of saints? Those are going to kind of be taken together. And then thirdly, well, how might we believe into this part of the creed? So why is the church Catholic? What does it mean to be the communion of saints? And how might we believe into this part of the creed? So why is the church Catholic? Uh, there's a book that we've been using as the preaching team by Ben Myers called The Apostles Creed, and he has been super helpful in so many of our weeks uh, as we've come to these different phrases. And so I want to acknowledge Ben Myers um, in my response to these questions, so I'm taking some cues from him here. First, though, before we get to the first response to this question, notice the small C on the word Catholic. It's important for us to know, before we move any further, that if we didn't know this already, that the church Catholic means the church universal, the church that is one. There have been many Christian communities spread out across different times and places and cultures, but they are all mysteriously united in the one spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but the universality or the oneness of the church can feel pretty abstract. We read this, that they may all be one, that we may practice unity. It's hard to get a handle on. So my hope in this question and coming at this question, considering a few responses to it, is that whenever we say this part of the creed in the future, that the word Catholic in this context, small c... Will evoke something more beautiful and tangible, rather than something that remains esoteric and kind of abstract in our minds. So, kind of like hoping, hoping that we can look at it like multiple sides of a diamond, and that each light will shed, or each side, sorry, will shed some light in a particular way. So, on a similar note, then the church is Catholic, or universal, or one because it is a microcosm of human society. It's a microcosm of human society. In the letter to uh, the Galatians, Paul writes this. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? That in the waters of of baptism, all of the old social divisions become moot. The church we are invited to believe into includes every kind of person, rich and poor, male, female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Whatever label or labels used to define us, now our identity is marked by being part of the company of Christ followers. There's no social barrier that could keep a person from being included in Christ's body. And so the boundaries of the church are as wide as the human race. The church is also Catholic because it preaches a Catholic message. The good news is not addressed to one particular social class or ethnic group. The gospel is the gospel. It is good news because it's offered to every imaginable human being. There's no one on the planet about whom you could say the message of Jesus doesn't apply. One unique and beautiful aspect of Christian faith is how translatable it is. The other great monotheistic traditions, Judaism, Islam, place a high value on preserving their sacred texts in their original languages, whether Hebrew or Aramaic. But Christianity, on the other hand, has, been, has seen translation as being centrally important. And this has been the case since the beginning Jesus himself spoke Aramaic, but the four gospel writers all translated his teaching into a common Greek, so the message would be accessible for as many readers as possible. And translation happened fast. It didn't take long before communities of Jesus' followers took root in many different cultures, each reading, proclaiming the gospel message in its own tongue. So the message of Jesus is a Catholic message. The message is Catholic, also, in the way that it responds to human plight. So the deepest human needs are addressed in the gospel. The message of Jesus doesn't just speak to a special part of life, the spiritual part, for example. It communicates to the whole of who we are, body and soul, individual and social. Continuing in Romans 12, verse 9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And it's so on. The gospel touches every dimension of our experience. It's broad and as deep as human life itself. It's a Catholic word because it speaks to the whole human condition. So these last two points, we've been touching on the fact that the Catholic Church has a Catholic message and that the beauty and universality of this message, this story that unifies and defines us, is a big part of why we can firmly believe in or live into or trust this part of the creed. But there's an even more revolutionary dimension of Christian Catholicity. The greatest barrier that divides humans from one another isn't culture or language or class. What is it? Is death. Death is what splits us into the two classes of the living and the dead. Every other social division is petty compared to death. And you and I are powerless to stop it. But even so, in the resurrection, something miraculous occurred. Jesus, the one who holds the keys to death and Hades, as he is raised from the tomb, steps across the great divide and restores The relationship restores communion between living and the dead. In the resurrection, Jesus formed one family that spans not only across the planet, but also all time. The church is Catholic. It's universal. It's one because it transcends even death. One writer said it this way, the body of Christ is the most inclusive community imaginable because it includes not only those who are now living, but also all believers who have ever lived. Do you and I consider ourselves to be in community with the dead? When we read about the great cloud of witnesses, to what degree do we actually feel surrounded by them, as the writer of Hebrews puts it? Are they even in the room? When we need to discern things, do the dead get a seat at the table? Put it in another way, when you hear the word Christian tradition mentioned as a voice that we ought to perhaps pay attention to. What's your immediate response to that? G.K. Chesterton said this, Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I think Chesterton hits the nail on the head as he so often does that there's an arrogance I give off, which I'm not even aware of often simply because I'm alive at this moment in history. How much could we be learning from our First Nations sisters and brothers on this? Honoring the voices of our ancestors. Are we listening? Am I listening? There's a sense in which when we confess, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, that we're saying, or we'd better be saying, I believe in a democracy of the dead. I believe in a democracy of the dead. One more reason that the church is Catholic, at least one more. We're just touching on a few. The good news is directed not primarily to individuals, but to a community. God's strategy right from the beginning has been to form one human society, as the bearer of the divine image. And so to the degree that we are faithful in imaging God from our unique place within the human family, it can be said that the church is what God has been doing in the world from the beginning. The church is what God has been doing in the world. So the church is meant to be a representative microcosm of what God intends for the whole of humanity. Myers said it this way. That is why every division between believers is a denial of the gospel. A Christian community is Catholic to the extent that it is always uniting. Whenever we identify a line of division within the human family, the risen Jesus calls us to step across that line in the power of the Spirit, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. To what degree are we working towards always uniting? Talk about a humbling question. And What does that look like? This stuff can be hard to read when in so many parts of Christ's body around the world, the words don't fit the picture. And I submit to you that the North American church is not a particularly bright star When we consider how well we've modeled unity as part of the global church, I think we've either treated unity as an optional extra that we might get around to someday, or we've fallen into the trap of thinking that unity means uniformity and sameness, that that we have to agree on everything, or we can't be in communion. I just can't imagine that this is what the architects of the creed had in mind when they first put this in the creed. I believe in the communion of saints. I think we've devolved into something more like, I believe in the mere tolerance of saints. I believe in putting up with some of them, if I absolutely have to. Here, in our little corner of the world, over the past couple of years in particular, at Artisan, we've been seeking to hold the practice of unity as more centrally important. We've taught about it more often, and of course, we've got a lot of work to do, but we're making strides. We're trying to engage this. It can also be... Encouraging, I think, to see pictures and hear stories of where unity in diversity within the Christian church is actually happening. So that's why uh, I thought this would be a good excuse to tell you a little bit about the Taizé community. A few of you have heard me talk about Taizé before, but it's been a little while. For those who aren't aware, Taizé is a monastic community in the central eastern part of France. It was founded by a man called Brother Roger Schultz during World War II who looked around at all these Christians killing each other and thought, if our faith doesn't transcend all this, then what are we even doing? So he started as a ministry to help Jews escape Nazi persecution in the small village of Tézé near the town of Cluny. Soon he and a few others began to care for orphans who had been abandoned nearby. A few years later, a total of seven brothers committed themselves to live in communion, to renounce all ownership, to practice celibacy, and to follow the decisions of the prior so they might be of one heart and one mind. That was around between 1940 and 1949. So then the community grew over time, they developed a shared rule of life, and eventually Téze started to become a place of pilgrimage, mainly for young people between 16 and 30, from all over, mostly Europe, but all over the world. And to this day, tens of thousands visit Téze every year. Why? They're drawn, mysteriously, to Tezé's unique focus on the conjoining of the inner life on one hand and human solidarity on the other. So back in 2006, I got to spend a week at Tezé with a former teaching colleague, and that week there were 6,000 people present, most of them between 16 and 25, Totally what North American teenagers do all the time as well. Hang out at a monastic community where they pray three times a day. It, it was a decidedly non-North American experience. So uh, my colleague and I were in a group of obviously over 25s, and there were about 200 of us, but the rest were uh, between 16 and 25. So we gathered for worship with the brothers three times a day. Some of you know about the music. We've sung the odd Taze chant uh, here at Artisan before, but it's, it's simple, it's beautiful, it's repetitive, um, and some of you have probably even been to East Van Taze gatherings before, um, just here. I'm not even sure if they're still running right now. Can anyone confirm or deny whether they're still happening right now? I won't leave that one hanging too long. We'll just leave it. So it's kind of, their style is a, a mix of Gregorian chant and Renaissance choral music, so there's lots of harmony, and I think during that week, we probably sang in between 12 and 15 different languages. It didn't matter that we didn't speak each other's tongues. You you listen to the chant two, three, four times in you, you hear the translation, you start to get it, you sing along eventually you get it. And thousands of people from all over the world from countless different traditions and denominations as that group of people we learn to sing as one church. And if we can learn to sing together, what else might we be able to accomplish? It's remarkable. Taizé was also where I feel like I started to make friends with silence. I knew uh, going in that silence was a big part of the communal gatherings and that it would be anywhere between four minutes and eight minutes long. And coming in on day one, I think the silence was the thing that I was just most nervous about. I was a little bit apprehensive about it. By day two or three, it was the thing I craved the most. It's hard to describe what it's like to experience 6,000 people all being quiet at once. Outside of those corporate worship spaces, we also spent time in scripture, where the brothers uh, led us in Bible studies each morning. And I was struck by a bunch of things about those times as well. One was how the brothers managed to facilitate communication amid all the languages represented there. So picture this with me. The first day, Brother Emil... Gathered us over 25s in kind of a large outdoor shelter. You know, up at church retreat at um, Stillwood, there's that kind of gazebo. It's one of those, but really big, like 200 people could fit in it. And so um, he said, all right, what languages do we have represented here? And I don't remember exactly. There were at least eight, English, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Dutch, Spanish, Polish. And so he said, okay, now get into those sections. All Polish speakers over here, Italians, Germans over there. Um, And then he proceeded to get those who spoke the same language uh, or those who could translate those languages to be identified. Okay, who can translate from either English or French? And So sit and just stand and be be connected to each one of those groups. So then for the next hour and a half, Brother Emil would lead us in engaging a passage from the Gospels. He would offer it in English and then French, and then he would pause and he would let the translators do their work kind of all over the room. And occasionally, Brother Emil, who evidently spoke a few other languages as well, would be teaching a concept that was difficult to translate, say, in German. So he, he would ask those who spoke it to come, help him come up with the best words to convey what was intended. I know there, this is a hard word in German. What, what could be better than that? It was holy, and it was a bit chaotic, kind of all at the same time. I remember thinking as a North American how inefficient this all was. I mean, a study that would normally take 30 minutes was taking 90. And it dawned on me that maybe there are cultural values that are more important than efficiency. We had to listen patiently, intently. We had to honor one another's histories and languages and weird pronunciations. We had to physically lean in towards people we had just met as we gathered around the life of Jesus together through the Gospels, there was a sense, as Paul put it in our Romans 12 text, of each member belonging to all the others. The whole experience of that week was a beautiful picture of the oneness, not the sameness, the oneness of the body of Christ. So Teze was a gift in my experience, and it's one of the reasons why I can say I truly believe in the Holy Catholic Church, in the communion of saints. But I can also say it because I've been part of neighborhood groups in this church that read scripture together, that pray, that practice vulnerability, that confess their sin, that use their gifts to serve each other as well as their neighbors and communities. I believe in the communion of saints because I've been part of spiritual direction groups that holds space in such a way as to help one another become more attuned to the voice and the action of the Spirit in their lives. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church when I see growing numbers of people in our community, linking arms in tangible gospel partnership, even though we don't agree on absolutely everything. I can confess this part of the creed because I spent last weekend with 10 people, mostly from artisan, a few from other churches, on silent retreat, together seeking to invest generously in friendship with God. I can believe into this part of the creed because a couple of months ago, a group of diverse churches from the downtown east side, from different denominations and practices, came together right here in this space to worship on Good Friday. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, because despite All apparent evidence to the contrary. There are places and times and moments and communities who are practicing the way of Jesus together in ways large and small, public and obscure, in fits and starts, sometimes killing it, other times really failing, but always getting up and starting over because God's mercies are new every morning when the words fit the picture in terms of what the church is intended to be, there is literally nothing on earth like it. Back in the second century, there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus. He wrote a book attacking the Christian faith. And nearly 100 years later, the great Egyptian scholar Origen wrote a reply. And boy, what is it, a reply. It was a defense of Christianity that still might be the finest work of apologetics ever written. But before he launched into his defense, Origen actually pointed out that the way of Jesus doesn't really need any defense. Here's what he said. Jesus is always being falsely accused and there's never a time when he is not being accused. He is still silent in the face of this and does not answer with his own voice. But he makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples. For their lives cry out the real facts and defeat all false charges. Jesus didn't write any books. He didn't lay down all the correct answers to moral questions. He was the author not of ideas but of a way of life. Think about it. Everything Jesus believed to be important he delegated to us. A small circle of followers. And what he gave us essentially was life his life. He showed us his unique way of being alive, his way of living and loving and feasting and forgiving and teaching, even dying. And he said, you also, you live like this. I've already mentioned Ben Myers, quoted him a couple times, but I have to share one more ridiculous long three-slide summary quote here because it's just so good. So breaking the rules of what you're supposed to do. He said this, to become a Christian, is to be included in the circle of Jesus' followers. I'm washed with the same bath that Jesus and all his followers have had. I get to share the same meal that Jesus shared with his followers. Four of Jesus' followers left written records of what he said and what he was like, and I get to spend my life continually pondering those four accounts. I read them not because I'm studying ideas about Jesus, but because I'm studying him. I want everything in my life right down to the smallest and most disappointing details to enter somehow into communion with the life of Jesus. I share the holy bath and the holy meal, and I read the holy stories because I am seeking Jesus. But when I do these things, I'm also seeking myself. I want to find myself among the circle of Jesus' followers. I want to be wherever Jesus is. And he is in the company of his friends. I want my whole life to be hidden with Christ in God. I want my life's small story to be tucked into the folds of Jesus' story. When this happens, my life acquires a meaning beyond itself. I begin to see myself as part of a great company, an ever-widening circle of people who have handed their lives over to the pattern of Jesus' life. This great company of disciples seems to speak with one voice, to breathe with one spirit, to cry, Abba, Father, with one unceasing prayer. These three slides are maybe as close as I could get within this week, within the time that I had to answer the question of what it means to be the communion of saints. So we're already answering our second question, and we're beginning already to address the third. So let's go to that. How might we believe into this part of the creed? So if you're, you're brand new here this morning, I've been using this word believe into. And just for context, from the beginning of this series, when we talk about all these different phrases, I believe in, I believe in, I believe in, we've been trying to reframe believe not simply to mean a mental assent. Or taking a theological box, but actually to give our hearts to each phrase, not only believing it in our heads, but trusting it with our lives. So that's in brief what I mean by that. So let me just offer a few thoughts in response to this, some invitations to consider. It seems to me that a primary way we can believe into this part of the creed is simply to prioritize oneness. the well-known prayer of Jesus in John 17. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. That is his original circle of followers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That includes us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. To prioritize oneness and to practice unity in this way is not to see unity, as Jesus prayed for it, as an optional extra in terms of our shared life, but to practice the way of Jesus by prioritizing what he prioritized. And part of this is to begin to notice the degree to which individualism has taken root in my life, in your life. To confess it, to name it, to denounce it, and to actively engage in practices that serve to usher us into a more true communion, into a growing, deepening sense that we are in fact impoverished to the extent that we don't recognize our need for each other, to prioritize oneness. I think part of that, these kind of trickle on, I think part of that means learning to embrace humility. Learning to embrace humility. I was humbled this past week by a thread posted on Instagram by an indigenous woman named Caitlin Curtis. Anyone know that name? Anyone follow Caitlin Curtis on Instagram? You should. Some of you might know of her. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, an author, a prophet, activist. Here's what she said. I want to say a few things to non-natives. If you care at all about the environment or any social justice issues, it's imperative that you listen to Indigenous voices. Listen to podcast interviews, read books by Indigenous authors. Center our realities so that when you do your own work, you aren't continuing the atrocities that have happened throughout history. Of course, I'm specifically speaking in Christian spaces often, so I will say this, being part of the Christian tradition requires that you educate yourself on how Christian colonization has destroyed the lives and economy of so many indigenous people all over the world. It shouldn't be the job of any indigenous person to remind you that we are still here and yet our very existence is denied consistently in the media, in our schools, in history books, in religious spaces, and, of course, in the government. So next time you're in a city hall meeting, talk about stolen land and Indigenous rights. Next time you attend a social justice conference, talk about how Indigenous peoples are invisible in society. Next time you're in church, bring up colonization and complicity. All of this should matter to you, but pick one thing that you can focus on. Learn slowly and well, Share what you learn. Make space for others to join you. Create change. So I wanted to share this with us because I need, think we need to be challenged in it with more consistency and because we need to hold each other accountable on it. Uh, also, what shared it to encourage you because that last slide is really, really encouraging and comforting. It's okay to start small. It's okay to learn slowly. There's so many, of course, other ways to take on a posture of humility, of openness and learning and honoring one another. But it struck me, this is one that we need to own together as we seek to believe into the communion of saints. So I wanted to offer that last response. To engage in the partnership of the generations. A little story from Mark Sayers. He talked about how uh, when the Asian tsunami, tsunami of 2004 hit Aceh in Indonesia, over 167,000 people tragically died. Yet there was an island called um, Saimelu, Saimelu, I think that's it, Saimelu, just off Aceh, and only seven people were killed. Why? So the answer was an institution on the island of Simelu called Smong, S-M-O-N-G, Smong. It's a storytelling tradition in which elders tell stories to the children of the island, and every Smong story ends with this warning. If a strong tremor occurs, and if the sea withdraws soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon rush ashore. Say it again. If a strong tremor occurs, and if the sea withdraws soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon rush ashore. So... When a strong tremor occurred and the sea withdrew, everybody on the island knew the gravity of the situation. They knew exactly what to do. If the storytelling institution of Smong had not been treated with the utmost seriousness and consciousness, it could have easily been lost. So self-interest, the lack of a living memory of such an event occurring could easily have led to the tradition being let go. But the story was remembered and lives were saved. The institution of Smong is what one writer called the partnership of the generations. It's this idea that the healthy institutions give voice and place both to those who have died and those yet to be born. The partnership of the generations. We tend to be so entrenched in our individual perspectives, but if an institution such as the church is to truly remain healthy, worthy of being believed in or lived into, it should outlive us. Every time we meet here as the communion of saints, every time we gather to rehearse our story, we ought to be learning from the past in order to create a better future. The voices of the past provide wisdom. They show us where the dangerous rocks lie. They teach us the principles, the beliefs, the values that apply in any context. The wisdom of those who went before us teaches to think long-term, to see beyond the present. Mark Sayers said this, it's a lot harder to be a selfish person when you know that the next generation may have to pay the price for your self-absorption. Words of Jesus in Matthew. More familiar words. Matthew 28. All authority... And heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This, too, is the partnership of the generations. Those disciples went out into the world. They invested in the future. They apprenticed themselves to Jesus. They taught someone else to do the same And this continued on and on over and over across the seas, across cultures, across nations through centuries and millennia right up to here, the present time, in this room. So may the Spirit enable us, empower us to believe into the Holy Catholic Church, to prioritize oneness, to practice unity, to embrace a posture of humility and intentional listening and learning, to engage the partnership of the generations so that we may do our part in truly becoming a communion of saints. And in all of this, may we be tethered to Jesus, who is the head of the church throughout all space and time, for his sake and for his glory.